Uh, we're going to finish off kind of where we were addressing some things this morning on the topic of we need counseling. Um, we just want to kind of tie up with some remaining leftover uh, content we wanted to address here. So let's pray and we'll begin. God, thank you for this chance to reflect upon uh, ways in which we can grow as a movement and just as Christians. So I pray that your spirit would guide this conversation and it would guide the Q&A that uh, takes place at the conclusion of this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. What we have to share is less than a typical sermon, by the way. So it's not like a long sermon and then Q&A. We're just going to kind of address some things here and then go into the questions right from there. So one of the things that can arise out of environments where bad religion is taking place is something called scrupulosity or spiritual OCD. Um, it's basically a form of hypersensitivity uh, to issues of morality, right? So someone may feel like they have to repent like 50 times over the same thing because it wasn't quite good enough, or they've got to go give a Bible study or God's going to be mad with them. This kind of like internal um, mechanism in their way of thinking that it's not just like, well, this is something God probably wants me to do. It becomes an obsessive focus focus. If I don't do this, there's going to be severe consequences. If not, it's kind of this type of uh, a framework. And it can literally ruin someone's life and religious experience if it's not brought into check. And many times it's found in the more conscientious in nature uh, who grow up in more morally focused environments. Um, there's actually a website created by an Adventist to address this issue and to help people. Uh, the website is scrupulosity.com, S-C-R-U-P-O-L-I-S-I-T-Y.com. And uh, it's an Adventist missionary who went through this themselves, and she is now committed to doing a ministry that helps people overcome this because it could be quite, quite serious. And counseling for many times is recommended for people in this scenario. I was just going to say, um, in addition to this, or maybe to preface this in a way, um, we'll talk about some different, you know, forms of thought distortions. And I think it's really important to tune into the fact that if you understand what people are dealing with or that many of these distortions are caused by trauma or pain, root cause issues, it really draws compassion out of our souls toward these people instead of, you know, hatred or like, oh, I, this church member sucks or this pastor is being abusive or whatever it is. Well, all of those things are not okay. We can also lean on compassion in the fact that, like, there is trauma and things that occurred that caused people to think in these ways. So I just kind of want to preface that. Yeah, these are usually the result of adverse experiences. And so imagine if something happened, if you did something that made you feel a significant amount of shame. Uh, I'm thinking of someone's story right now who they encountered something in their life that caused them a severe amount of shame. And as a result of that, their scrupulosity or spiritual OCD began to show up because the idea was, I'm never going to let that happen again. And so now they're parsing their whole life with like, oh, but if I say this, that being dishonest, like it's not just like having a sense of having a moral compass of wanting to make ethical decisions, it's on like a far extreme obsessive side of the aisle, if that makes sense, and uh, can be quite debilitating for a lot of people, especially when you think, I have to do all these things. If you already have an anxious mindset, I have to do these things or God is just going to completely be done with me and cast me off and so forth. It can be quite traumatic. Um, wanted to cover some case studies of some people in this idea of bad religion as well. Uh, I alluded to this last night. How 
many people have ever heard of the book I Kiss Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris? Uh, <laughs> see a big thumbs down from the back. Um, so, yeah, this book, um, I was actually re-watching the TED Talk I alluded to last night. He has a TED Talk called Strong Enough to be Wrong, and it's incredibly fascinating. It's about 18 minutes, um, and in this moment of Josh's experience, I feel like he was really starting to figure some things out and has some profound observations. I would strongly recommend watching it. There may be a few things I would disagree with, but largely I appreciated what he shared. But he basically was 21, I think, when he wrote that book and had been in one serious relationship. But that book became the Bible for relationships for many conservative evangelical homeschool families and so forth in the late 90s and early 2000s and carried on afterwards. And many times, so uh, Sarah alluded to this in her story a bit, that when fear is the bedrock of the way that we do religion, it can get us in trouble. And so many parents were afraid that their kids would get in unhealthy relationships, go and do the worldly dating routes, right, and so forth, and have sex before marriage and whatever. So based out of their fear, right, they were really wanting to get this book so their kids wouldn't have a bad relationship experience. But the problem is, Josh admits later, he wrote that book largely in a fear frame of mind, and that fear was transferred into the readers. And so readers were super anxious and uneasy about relationships, and so it ended up causing a lot and of harm. And their spirituality as a result. Yeah, and, and then their overall view of spirituality, because it kind of gave this overall uh, money-back guarantee. If you just follow this recipe, you're going to have a great marriage, you're not going to have problems, you have an amazing sex life, and so forth. But the problem is you're getting two sinful human beings, and they're yoking their lives together. There is no money-back guarantee right? Like we believe in free will and so forth. And so there are risks, like love requires risks by definition, right? Because love requires freedom. And so the way in which he packaged this set a lot of people up for heartbreak, and then their view of God and faith completely imploded because they trusted this area of their life to God, and then the relationship didn't work. People thinking, I'm going to marry the first person I date, and so forth, then their spirituality suffers as a result of that, right? So there are lots of outworkings that as a 21-year-old who'd been in one relationship, those things weren't taken into account, that there's nuance in how these things actually operate. And so for him, he came from an environment uh, in his kind of corner of the faith world, and it's pretty common in conservative environments, that we are so focused on standing for the right that unintentionally our identity can be interwoven with being right. And the danger for this is if somebody challenges or shows certain things that you believe to be in error, it's an existential threat to you at the identity level because your identity is tied to being right. Does that make sense? And this put Josh in a bit of a spiral because for a long time, people are just haters if they don't like my book and whatever. But the problem was he came to realize that... Um, while he'd left, he was pastoring a big church in Virginia and then transferred to uh, go back to college to get higher education. And as he did that, um, while he was in that season of life, this woman sent him a, a, a comment on, in, on Twitter saying that your book was used against me like a weapon. And instead of just counting her off as a hater as he normally would, for whatever reason, he chose to listen and have compassion. And he just said, I'm so sorry. And from that back and forth, it's eventually transition to direct messages and talking through and hearing her story. She said, you're the only religious leader I have ever met who has apologized for getting anything wrong. And he realized something's very wrong here. 
And on top of that, she said, you're the only person in a religious authoritative position who's ever taken interest to even hear my story and to acknowledge the losses I've incurred. And this meant so much to her, and it started to really challenge him. This isn't just an avatar, because at the same time, he's going to college, and his classmates had a similar experience. There were people who were blessed by his books, not that it was all cursings, but he would rather hide with the people who agreed with him than actually listen to the people who didn't. And that came from the environment he grew up with, and there's an existential threat. If I acknowledge I'm wrong in any form, right, then my identity's at stake here. He's got skin in the game. And so his peers said similar things. So he eventually made a documentary of him working through this journey of hearing people's stories who were hurt by his book and how to work through it. He opened up his website, let them send their comments, and it was difficult for him. The documentary, it's for free, it's on YouTube. It's called I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And again, it's fascinating. Um, I, do I agree with everything? No, but it's quite thought-provoking, different points that are brought out, where purity culture came from, what it was in response to, and so forth. And anyway, what eventually happened... Josh was in this kind of difficult valley and journey, and eventually, as he started to kind of question certain things he believed, because he didn't have a solid foundation at the identity level of just a relationship with, an intimate relationship with Jesus, eventually he found himself separated from his wife because he was challenged in his faith journey, and eventually he's now divorced and no longer identifies as a Christian. And you think, how did this happen? That guy was so solid, was so good on relationships, and then this happens. Well, I think this is one of the reasons why. And his fear-based foundation transferred to his writer's um, experience and triggered a fear-based response. So those self-protective tendencies and fig leaves that develop through insecurity and fear. So he says, my biggest regret is that there was a lot of fear in me that I transferred into my writing, and fear is never a good motive. Fear of messing up, fear of getting your heart broken, fear of hurting somebody else, fear of sex. Then he asks, why did it take me so long to see these problems? He said, I think it's because I was so afraid of being wrong. That book had given me an identity, and it was so hard for me to face up to being wrong because it felt like I was saying a big part of my life was wrong, and I didn't have the courage to do that. And in this moment of vulnerability, before he left Christianity, I feel like he was in that ready-to-hear-a-counselor space. But the problem is, something he'll talk about in his TED Talk, is when you start to acknowledge that you are wrong, you also need to be prepared for the fact that there are friendships and relationships that you have, that people are invested in who you are right now, and they are not going to be in support of who you need to be. And this was challenging for him, something he didn't expect, that when he started to come to the realization of certain things that he agree, or believed that weren't correct, people didn't support him in that because they were in it for this version of Josh, not the best version of Josh or who he could be. And just imagine, right, when you acknowledge that I was wrong, people who were with me now feel attacked because I'm basically saying by default that they're wrong. And it's a difficult space to be in, psychologically and so forth. And I think because of that support system imploding around him, he didn't have that space for the counselor he could have benefited from. Does that make sense? And so um, idealism was being pushed through his worldview many times. And he wasn't the only one that had those, those worldviews. Um, and so anyway, that's, that was a big part of it. I think it's important too to remember like, Dee and I aren't just talking about this case study of sorts just because it's interesting or like something crazy that happened with somebody that had fear-based religion. Like, it's a call to each one of us to identify why do we do the things that 
we do or the way that we do them? Why do we practice religion and spirituality in the way that we do, right? Because any one of us could be somebody like Joshua Harris, right? I mean, maybe we're not publishing books and stuff, but we are sharing our faith. We're interacting with our faith on a daily basis. We're growing our spirituality. And how can we in the same right, you know, have this kind of distorting thinking patterns in our spirituality and be so scared to abandon it? And I think there's really something to be said with how uncomfortable it feels um, to have to leave something that you've always known or, you know, oftentimes spirituality feels like a safety net for us or it feels like home to us, right? Something that provides us, you know, security and things like that and connection to God. So it can feel incredibly uncomfortable um, to step away from a thought process that you've engaged with for many years. And that provided you security, right? Yeah. I have to do these things and then I'm okay to let go of some of those practices that maybe were unbiblical or idealistic and black and white thinking and so forth is scary because what if I'm wrong? Yeah. Right? I'll, I'll, the very reasons why I did this are the very reasons why it's hard for you to leave fear. And for me, it definitely was that way as well. Like just having to disentangle my faith from so much fear-based religion it was incredibly disorienting and very unsarah-like is what it felt like. And just having to say like, you know what, I'm gonna have to really take a hard look at this and lean into the uncomfortableness that it takes, right, to change your spirituality or tweak it. Um, and so my encouragement is to you, don't be afraid of that. Yeah. Lean into it, that uncomfortable state can take you somewhere so much better and create a new cycle that then becomes comfortable as well, so. Yeah. And so idealism was a big part of his framework too. And many times idealism is like the unbiblical laws of the Jews made in Jesus's day, right? They don't point to Jesus. It points to man and his efforts instead of Christ and his efficiency. And it's largely rooted in fear. And fear can make us create standards and rules that aren't biblical to try to save ourselves and protect ourselves. And it leads to additional shame because now there's more standards that you're not reaching up to, right? Not only the biblical standards, but the man-made layers that we've added on top of that, and it just gets rough. And so kind of tied into this is this idea of black and white thinking. Um, and towards, it's just like, it's super clear. It's either this or it's that. But the problem is life is not black and white. Life has so much nuance, and there can be solid, clear principles that God has in his word, or even policies that are to the T of what to do, but many times God gives us principles and gives freedom for how to walk in that, right? We know clearly what day the Sabbath is. It's the seventh day of the week, no problem. There are some allusions to some aspects of what Sabbath observance can look like, but God gives a lot of latitude and freedom in his word on what that can look like for you or for you or for you. And I think we need to be open and, and like okay with not having recipes for doing life um, because our human nature, we just long to be controlled and be told what to do or to control. Critical thinking is scary for us, honestly, right? To actually look at a text, think critically and make my own decision is so much more difficult than for someone to say, all right, now when I say this, here's what you say and then we just... We have this like very black and white look at the view of the world. It gets us in a lot of trouble. And so I think people who long for recipes in doing life, God actually wants you to be able to think critically and make your own decisions, right? God gave Adam and Eve freedom in the garden, not restriction. Of all these trees you may freely eat, but in the day you eat of this one, there's consequences, right? He wanted it to instill within them critical thinking. So Yeah, I think that's super important, especially... Um, in some religious people groups who 
are really focused on authority and who constantly demand that you know you obey that line of thinking whatever whoever that authority person is um, and I think that's just so dangerous because it really takes away somebody's free will and you're constantly being told what to do and like I shared in my story it set me up for failure it set me up for thinking that abusive behavior was normal and okay and that you know my reasoning and my intellect was not something that I could truly engage um, or use instead you know I just had to obey an authority figure and so again like <laughs> it's not only damaging for your spiritual life it can truly be damaging for your rest of you know other relationships and whatnot yeah and even in adulthood right so um, we have many young people that run through our program some of them come from quite controlling homes um, they're getting texts all the time while they're in the program from parents what's going on or we're getting calls and it's like these are these are young adults who are supposed to leave the nest and and I speak at academies I've been to like 37 of our schools I've met lots of these young people who they literally don't know how to think for themselves they don't know how and the problem is when you are in that frame of mind predators thrive in that type of environment right oh you don't know how to think I'll think for you you do this and you and that's all you've known and so I think that doing this in a parenting context can be quite damaging. And so we kind of get trained subconsciously by this way of thinking. You've got to do these things or God won't be happy with you. Obey, obey, obey. Obey mommy, obey daddy, or God's not going to be happy with you. Or, or We don't say it that way, but we say it in a way that says that. So we'll say, like many of our, you know, uh, way we can give like instruction to children is, you know, that if you obey mommy and daddy, God will be happy with you. But what does that imply? Earn favor. Yeah, it's earn favor, and if you don't obey, God's not going to be happy with you. But does the Bible say that God doesn't like you on the days you disobey, but he does like you on the days that you do obey? Or does the Bible say that God is love, full stop? Are you understanding? So we're training, even at a young age, a performance-driven way of thinking. And if they're more conscientious in nature, scrupulosity is on the forecast, right? Like, this is the way that this can actually play out. And so... What we don't talk about is the fact that God can even meet us in our wrong choices. God honors our individuality, and he allows us to have freedom to make choices. And even if we make difficult choices or even the wrong ones, it's not over. It's not the worst thing in the world. God understands that many times, especially as humans in a fallen world, we learn through the prerequisite of failure. Do you walk the first time you try? No, you fail, you stumble, you fall, you get dings and bruises. That's what learning to walk looks like. And so we almost get this picture of God that he has this high, unreachable standard with no sense of sympathy or understanding for the actual human condition. We make lots of mistakes, and we can learn from them and grow through them. So God is not averse to us going through experiences where we make mistakes. Does he have ideals and plans for us? Of course, but he also is understanding you're going to make mistakes as you're figuring it out. Mm -hmm. It's not that he gives the Ten Commandments and expects that you will never fall on that ever again from the time you first hear it until the second coming of Jesus. Like God understands as humans, we're working through things and how to make them our own. As teenagers, we push boundaries and try to make sense of things. God is not an insecure parent, even if our parents may have been. 
And I think that that, and, and, or an authority figure that's insecure, as some other people in our life may have been, maybe our parents were wonderful. Praise God for that. Whatever it may be, my point is, he's not feeling so disappointed and angry as the way that we've portrayed him many times. And honestly, I think that brings so much peace and ease into your spiritual life, because like Dee was saying, if God is the ultimate parent, isn't concerned in the ways that we are, um, then like how beautiful and freeing would it be to just place your trust in him and think the way he thinks, right? I think it would be so liberating and allow people to have that free will as well and um, use their reasoning, which we all have the blessing and gift of. Mm -hmm. So the tendency of legalism many times is to paint a false picture of simplicity when that's not the narrative of the Bible, right? We want the recipes, but God gives principles and gives us space to figure it out. But we prefer those recipes because they provide that false sense of security just follow the recipe, I'll be safe, I'll be protected, I won't get hurt, whatever. So we're afraid of critical thinking. But Hosea 4, 6 says that my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, right? So Josh acknowledges that my book hurt people, my book helped people, and this reflected the, complex, the complexity of reality. And that's part of what he had to sort through. And I will say too that researchers have developed this understanding of the black and white thinking really being rooted in trauma and as a way to escape something that may be scary for us in the future. And something that may be scary for us in the future could be a lot of things, right? Like an unsuccessful dating relationship or maybe an unsuccessful spiritual life at that point in time. Whatever it may be, how do our thoughts, you know, begin to wire in the frame of mind that we're in because of pain? Right, and I think this really happened for Joshua Harris too, trying to avoid the pain and you know being in this state of fear, you know, and then these kind of distorted spirituality messages come out as a result. Mm -hmm. And so his stepping back from having absolutes and finding more compassion eventually brought him to a place of relativism that offered no answers at all. And this is where I think we need to be careful that um, once we get into this, uh, going back to this idea of deconstruction and disentangling we talked about last night, that it's really hip to have the kind of the Greek mindset to challenge and question everything. But the problem is you're never really coming to genuine conclusions on anything. If you're, if you're questioning everything, you're not really questioning for the sake of actually learning answers. You're just kind of pushing back against the boundaries and things you don't like. And so in deconstruction, many times this is what happens. I encountered this, I didn't like it, encountered this, didn't like it, and so I'm out of here. Instead of asking, well, was it biblical, first of all? Did someone do it in a wrong spirit, but it's actually a biblical principle, we're skipping an important and valid test and can end up encountering a lot of heartbreak and loss in the process. And so this uh, initial freedom you feel from shedding the baggage and control of legalism um, feels like healing initially, but it doesn't really leave you with lasting answers in the long game. This is the danger of it, right? Because you're actually abandoning the only thing that can bring real resolution and healing to your identity and so forth. That's no longer an option because someone marred that option in your mind. And because you didn't like it, you just want to leave. It ends up setting you up for a long-term heartbreak. And so it feels liberating at first and you think that's healing, but the more the time goes on, you don't really have anything to stand on. You've lost your foundation. And so that's where we take uh, issue with that. But I think it's important that we don't address the topic of deconstruction as it's like, as coming across as just like dismissive and chippy or uh, lacking in compassion because many times people are going through that experience because of real harm that we as a church have done. 
And that makes it sound like we don't need to take ownership, right? It's all on them. They weren't converted anyway. They're just being carnal, want to chase the world. Well, maybe we've done really harmful things that we need to take ownership for. Where they're ending up, we wouldn't endorse. I don't think it's helpful, but it's also kind of like common sense, right? The whole French Revolution that led to modern-day evolution or modern-day um, atheism today is largely because of the bad religion of the Catholic Church in the Dark Ages, right? It's an overreaction to a bad use of religion. So I think that we have to kind of understand how these processes play out. So um, there's a story that we alluded to as far as one last case study here. Um, Audrey Assad is another one. I won't go into this too much, but um, Audrey Assad grew up, or she was a uh, devout Catholic and was a musician, is a musician, and eventually the topic of hell as taught by the Catholic Church really weighed on her for a long time and brought her a lot of anxiety that she wasn't going to be good enough, was going to be lost, and I have to save everybody or they're going to burn in hell forever if I don't do something. And this made her so miserable that eventually she abandoned all versions of Christianity because she just couldn't take it anymore. And so I think it's important to understand that even certain theological teachings and emphases can cause mental illness and can cause people to leave their faith entirely. And hers was an example of that. But there's another one here uh, by Ginger Duggar. Yeah, have any of you watched the documentary Shiny Happy People? Has anybody seen anybody? that, Shiny Happy People? Yes, she's in it. <laughs> um, yes, I highly recommend watching this documentary. It may resonate with you and or give you an insight into how some people groups work and how you can influence or help other people who have been through similar experiences. But um, Ginger Duggar-Volo, she went through this experience of you know, encountering this authoritarian figure who was incredibly abusive and basically was given a set of many rules to obey in order to earn God's favor. And that really resonated with me because that was kind of the idea that was presented a lot in my community. And um, just kind of, I don't know, just, just not understanding, I guess, that God's love for us is eternal. And like Dee said, it, it is full stop. It's not something that we have to earn, right? Um, I think often for me, like, it would be, oh, I've got to greet the Sabbath because, you know, it'll make God happy and, you know, he'll be happy with me and we'll be good, right? So it's a way to kind of ease anxiety and relationship. Whenever now I've been able to create this secure attachment with God where I know that he loves me, whether I'm, you know, on time for sundown or not, and that he's there waiting for me to greet me, somebody who respects me, loves me, and wants to spend time with me, versus someone that's saying, you better be here or else you're not going to be in good terms with me, right? And so um, I know Ginger experience something similar, and if that's something that you want to research more into as well, she has a book that's called Becoming Free Indeed, and she also talks about disentangling, which has been really helpful. Yeah, she was actually where we got that term, and I think it's really, really helpful to supply an alternative route. When you encounter things that make you struggle and are challenged by what you're seeing, there's multiple things that need to happen. For one, we need to take issue with what's happening that's not okay and abusive and unhealthy. We need to say something about that and address those issues in the church. But on top of that, we also need to give people an appropriate map for success so they're not finding themselves just bailing entirely because they think the whole ship is sinking when it really shouldn't, right? Is that there's people who are throwing buckets of water into the boat, right? And so that's a big one. Um, I just love too that her story is so redemptive and she definitely fell in love with the message of righteousness by faith, which is yeah. huge and um, so liberating too for the mind that's been 
in such an anxious state with God. Yeah, and just dealing with the performance metrics, right, or the performance-based religion. And so it's not that God doesn't have standards or that God doesn't have principles, but I think we need to kind of find that proper equilibrium there of understanding that God has principles. God also understands the weakness of humanity, and God is taking humanity on a journey from being weak and helpless to receiving his power, receiving his strength, and becoming what he longs for us to be. Does that make sense? That God is taking us on a journey. He declares us righteous while he's taking us on a journey to make us righteous. And that understanding is a game changer for our people when they see it. So there's a difference between deconstruction and disentangling. Deconstruction will lead you to another dangerous place. You have no anchor for anything anymore, and it's even more unsafe. So we long for stability and answers. Relativism only offers question, but not answers. So again, as I mentioned earlier, it's liberating to shed the baggage of legalism, and it feels like healing, but the end destination leaves you without any foundation to hold you up. And I think it's really important to remember how Josh sincerely wanted to help improve people's lives. The culture he was a part of didn't have answers for him. And so the well he had to draw from was destined to fail. But it doesn't negate the need for helpful principles to set us up for success as God longed for us to have abundant lives, not ones of bondage, pain, and legalism. So I think we need to find that pro proper balance there. So we need to step back and stop demonizing people who are victims of a systemic problem or issue. It's really easy to jump to blaming parents or Adventism or Ellen White or etc. when there is a systemic issue taking place that's causing issues, and it's not Adventist or an Ellen White issue, it's a human issue manifesting itself in an Adventist context. Are you understanding the difference? So you'll meet controlling atheists, Buddhists, Baptists, agnostics, and etc. So, um, yeah, I just want to make sure that we're, we're clear on that side of things, too, as we kind of tidy up the last part of our presentation here. Just because things have happened, many times the people who, who are, are pushing bad religion are people who actually want to honor God, who actually mean well, and have infrastructure that's doomed to fail. An unhealthy picture of God, unresolved brokenness in their own experience, and so forth. And when you understand these things and how they got to where they are, it's easier to find compassion for them. Not that you endorse what they did, but we should not be shaming people in the same way that maybe they're shaming us. They're just a bully. They're just a jerk. They're just a whatever. Well, we don't want to define them by their sins whenever they're defining us by our sins, right? Like, you don't fight fire with fire. This isn't honoring God. Many times they're struggling with things, and it, so what it does is it breaks the shame cycle, and it helps you to find bridges to talk through things, right? And some people aren't safe. You try to talk, they don't listen, you move on, right? You follow the Matthew 18 principle, it doesn't go anywhere, you move on with your life. But I just think it's really, really important to kind of separate these things and not just demonize people who many times are peddling what they themselves were given, Yeah? and understand that there's a systemic issue that needs to be addressed. Um, so that's kind of what I have and uh, on this side of things. you have anything else that's on uh, your heart? I was just going to say, too, take time to make a record or an inventory of your thoughts. And what do they look like in relationship to God, right? Are there any distortions? Are there any you know anxiety elements coming in? Um, is there any scrupulosity or OCD? Um, whatever it is, if you can't identify that, if you can't identify that on your own, please speak with a professional. And yeah, I can, I can guarantee, I can promise you that your spirituality will improve drastically once you're able to address um, what your spirituality is based in 
and what are traumas and pain that you have or that you're operating out of? Yeah, I mean, we have countless stories of people we work with who where they are now is not where they were when it began. And so um, one of the resources we're happy to offer you is just engaging the Adventist message from a healthy picture of who God is and what he intended, as opposed to a bunch of do's and don'ts. Uh, we've got a series that we produced at CORE called A God Worth Knowing, Reexamining the God We Thought We Knew. Um, if you'd like to have that resource, just come talk with us or message us. Uh, you can also just Google it, uh, or on, it's on YouTube. on YouTube. If you just search my name on YouTube, there's a playlist there called A God Worth Knowing, um, and there's 19 messages, and that will kind of give a way to maybe re-engage the Adventist message. That was actually part of Sarah's story, was having to re-approach Adventism as if she didn't know it, um, to try to see if there's something she missed along the way. And it was a beautiful healing experience for her to be able to see the Adventist message as God intended as opposed to the version she got from the community that she grew up in. And um, yeah, so that's another option. And then actually getting professional help if you find that these particular uh, mindsets and trains of thought are in a different direction than is healthy. Um, there's great resources. Um, there's a book called How We Love that was a game changer for me on the topic of attachment styles. Um, there's another one called Safe People by Cloud and Townsend that is a game changer. Uh, both of these are Christian resources. Another book called The Hidden Half of the Gospel by Paul Conniff. Uh, it's an Adventist pastor and therapist um, dealing with core beliefs and connecting our story to Jesus' story. Um, if you want those resources, just come talk to us. We can give you referrals again later. But those were three helpful resources for us that we have our students many times interface with to also kind of grapple some of the mental health worldview and righteousness by faith. So um, at this stage, we're opening up for questions. Um, again, we're addressing the topic of healing from bad religion and... Um, church hurt. And so if you have questions kind of in that vein or in that context, that's the main point of focus for today. Uh, if our stories uh, in relation to that can be helpful, that's certainly fair game as well. Um, as far as like Sarah's own journey of working through that, the reconciliation and healing her family's experience, what that looked like, have those conversations, whatever. Um, yeah, we uh, are opening up this time to you just to give you a space to kind of engage and uh, better internalized. So just raise your hands if you'd like to ask a question, and we will do our best to answer them. Yes. Okay. Um, so there's that possibility that you could be a person who's gone through religious trauma. There's also be a there's also that possibility that you could be the person that's causing religious trauma. How do you identify whether your beliefs are I, on either end of that spectrum, and um, whether you're either hurting other people through your beliefs, how do you know that your beliefs are correct or not correct? Hmm. How do you gauge that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think first and foremost, um, taking a step back and kind of seeking that counselor we alluded to earlier, of asking God to kind of speak truth into the inward parts of whether we're actually in the frame of mind that he would have and giving him space to speak is a big one. Um, and then on top of that, actually re-engaging the Adventist message through that kind of righteousness by faith lens and seeing if this resonates with you. This sounds like crazy liberalism, like what, what role am I supposed to play? Like sometimes this just helps us to get uh, a finger on the pulse of whether we're in a very works-based uh, view of Adventism or kind of a 
balanced righteousness by faith version. There's also the liberal version where like, God doesn't really care. He loves you no matter what you do. So don't even worry about this stuff, right? Like who cares about what you eat or how you dress? Or I think going through that can be helpful. Um, and then the resources that we alluded to earlier, the book Safe People was a big one, I think, because it explains what an unsafe person looks like. And then it explains how to be a safe person. And so even just reading that book with an open heart and open mind can be incredibly enlightening uh, just to see some of that. I'll just speak from my experience as well. Um, after I left the church for about five, six years, I had to go to therapy. <laughs> and I had to figure out what safe looked like. And I had to figure out where my thoughts were, you know, running in a vein that wasn't healthy. I literally had no idea about like what black and white thinking was, or there was such a thing as spiritual OCD, or there was such thing as, you know, abusive pastors or how authority could be so damaging. I had no idea. Um, but with the guidance of a professional, and I believe the Holy Spirit really working through that person helped me to understand, yeah, what does healthy really look like? And um, I was able to heal, you know, a lot within my own relationships, family dynamics and whatnot. And I think the last thing to come was healing in my spiritual life. Because then I suddenly realized, like, oh, wait, like, this applies to God, too, because, like, he's truly relational with us. Like, his desire is intimate relationship with us. And so why wouldn't all of this, you know, content and understanding that I'm receiving not apply in the spiritual realm? And it absolutely does, um, even far more beautifully than I thought. And so I would encourage you, like, if, if you think that maybe you have adopted a spirituality that is unhealthy or maybe you're practicing that, just take time to do inventory, you know, get to know what healthy is. And I think a lot of pieces will begin to fall into place after that. Yeah. And we, t we alluded last night and again this morning that what would the picture of Jesus look like that I'm painting to the world and how I'm communicating? Um, is it a frowny face? Is it a smiley face? Like, what does it look like? Because I think what we say uh, verbally is not that God is a monster who's mad at you looking over your shoulder every day. But there's an undertone of there's implication, right, that God really does need you to perform a certain way for him to be happy with you or so forth. So sometimes it's a subconscious implying and not an overt communication. Uh, and that takes some time to kind of see the nuance of how that can be, with the best of intentions, wrongly implied. Yeah, like, for example, my family had the best of intentions, and they were just highly concerned, highly anxious, highly fearful that me and my brother weren't going to make it to heaven. And so while they believed that God was ultimately love and they demonstrated God's love in so many ways, they also had this incredible fear that their children weren't going to make it. And so while they taught and believed certain doctrines and belief systems or angles of spirituality, in the home it was really like, oh my gosh, you got to do this and this and this and this and that, you know, to make sure that, you know, by all means, you will make it to heaven because you're doing all the good works, right? And so, like Dee was saying, like, you know, maybe you do have a right concept of the gospel and whatnot, but what are our fears that are coming into that and kind of distorting the true essence yeah. of the gospel? And, and this is the thing that's so uh, sad, right? Like, those were the best of intentions, right? Like, I want my kids to be in heaven. I want my kids to succeed. But the tools that were given from the community around them were not tools that would actually have the desired result. So the very thing they feared could happen, did happen, right? Ray. I um, very much appreciate your, your testimony, Sarah. And I like the sort of the overarching concept of uh, 
you know, it's a happy face that you're presenting of God, or is it a smiley face? I mean, a smiley face or a sad face. Um, I appreciate your vulnerability too. Um, I think you also highlighted the significance of liberty of conscience. And my, not deconstruction, but just entanglement kind of began pretty much when our church, in essence, turned its back on, on liberty of conscience um, to a large portion of the, of, 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 of the membership. Um, but, um, yeah, I think the, the, the importance of liberty of conscience, of not sweating the small stuff, too, you know, is very important. Um, is there danger, perhaps, of overthinking? Um, religion, overthinking church, overthinking relationships? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, uh, the... You spoke a lot about it this morning. Yeah, I think like, I'm trying to find the right words for this. I think that one of the things that can happen as a result of an anxious mind uh, that's very much in a fear-based framework, many times people can develop that analysis paralysis I certainly have seen many cases of that where people who should be learning how to make autonomous adult decisions are completely paralyzed because there's no authority figure to think for them. So I certainly think that finding that proper balance is very important because the world is looking for people to take advantage of in that sense, right? And, and unfortunately, even people within the church maybe can make those types of decisions for you, right? And so certainly there can be dangers there. Um, but I think big picture wise, God wants his people to weigh out on an individual basis, what are his principles, what's for their good, and for them to make the best decision they can with their conscience. I certainly believe there's a place for that and, and that God would long for that. Absolutely. Yeah, I was talking with a friend last night and we we're just saying how there's beautiful principles that are laid out in the Bible clearly, but then there's also so much nuance for the individual. Like for a certain individual, you know, maybe they're sweating a few of the small things because they really struggle in that area. And so they do things a little bit different than another person would. And so I think it's so important, like, yeah, don't sweat the small things. We're counseled in the Bible not to sweat the small things of sorts, right? Um, but just to be able to allow the Holy Spirit to truly pour into you and your individual needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, other questions? Got one in the back right corner here. Okay, another one there. So, what, um, what would the warning signs be of, one, a dangerous or unsafe sort of institution, kind of group, and sort of an individual leader? So, maybe there's an institution or a person that um, is pinging my radar, and I'm thinking, oh, I don't know if they're safe, or maybe they have some unhealthy beliefs, so what would some warning signs be that I could look for? Yeah, I mean, um, if you kind of research and just look for the main traits of narcissism, um, those are some big ones. That word's overused a lot nowadays. Uh, it's kind of vogue to just drop that term on anybody that maybe is going away we don't want them to. But if you actually look at some of those actual traits, um, they can be quite helpful to understand, like someone who's needing you to need them, right, or demanding that things go a certain way, and as soon as you don't comply, they stonewall, they get distant, right, they move other directions. Um, things along those lines can be quite difficult. Um, people who just don't actually know how to actively listen um, and hear, right, they're, they're basically listening long enough 
to wait for their turn to talk instead of listening in an active sense to hear what you're saying. Um, many times that can be damaging if people are just always pushing their agenda but not actually receiving uh, feedback and so forth can be another one. Uh, you have any other thoughts? Yeah, I think just getting really familiar with warning signs of personality disorder. Unfortunately, it's something that's growing. Um, children's needs aren't really being met in the way that they used to be. There's a lot of um, lack of emotional intelligence. There's a lot of needs that weren't met as kids and suddenly a bunch of, you know, big personality disorders are showing up. Just getting familiar with what that looks like and, you know, if you don't have free will in that context, if you are being shamed or if fear is being instilled into you, I think those are huge red flags toward a spirituality that is not being practiced in a healthy way. If your agency is being taken away, right? Like if there's not a sense of concern and agency and giving space for um, critical thinking and making individual decisions. Or if you so, can be never good enough, things like that. Yeah, like the continual picture is just a high, high standard, but no communication on how to get there. Um, just basically, Jesus actually alludes to this, which is fascinating and ironic to me that he gets on to the lawyers of his day and says, you, you throw all these heaps of weight upon men's shoulders, but you won't lift a finger to help them. But the irony to me is this is the picture of God that we have given to people at times that basically God has high standards, but we don't communicate how to actually reach that standard. This is why I think righteousness by faith is such an important topic to communicate of what the ministry of the Holy Spirit looks like and God empowering people to receive and to do the very things that he requires. That's reasonable leadership, right? But for someone to have a high standard and shame you when you don't meet it would be toxic and unhealthy. And so, um, if Jesus was against people putting a big weight on folks and not helping them, does it make sense that Jesus would do things that way himself? That that's what a faith that he would be happy with would look like? I think the answer to that's obvious, right? So that's another, another aspect too. Um, I think also just reading Hosea 2, that was so life-changing for me. And you might be wondering like, what? Hosea 2? But honestly, it's so important because I really saw God as being a master, and I think a lot of religious leaders as being masters, right, over people groups. Whenever Jesus said, I don't want to be your master, I just want to be a loving husband to you. And how are the people that are shepherding you, your congregation, um, your spouse, parents, whatever it is, how are they shepherding you? Are they shepherding you in love, or are they just really there for the power dynamic, for the control? Um, for being a master of lord over you. I think that's a huge one, too. Yeah. Good question. Um, <laughs> yes. I hope I can share in this form. I'm, I feel very blessed to be here. Um, interestingly enough, I was in the chapel, and <clears throat> when I went out, I had a flat tire. I thought I'd drive to the gas station. I ended up here. I'm waiting for them to fix my tire. But I'm so happy to be here because I do want to uh, um, mention um, what you said about the conscience and about bad religion. And I'd love to see a research, and I'm doing a doctoral at Redlands, by the way, and it keeps bringing me here because I've done research on Seventh-day Adventists, um, only to find out that they were led by a very powerful lady whose um, husband passed and she was in charge of the, building the chapel. And it became a university and it became a hospital, much more than that. But the conscience, when I did my research on Seventh-day Adventists, comes back from a people who are Protestants. So the umbrella here is people who protested something. 
as Protestants. And they were protesting some things in Catholicism along with Martin Luther, who refused to put his forehead on the ground to other humans or figures, and hence the church now doesn't have stuff on the walls for Protestants. And his words were about conscience. He says, you need to walk around with your forehead like a scale of right and wrong, and you're making decisions 24-7, kind of like the matrix. And when you keep making the wrong decisions, your conscience has led you away from truth. And he had to leave based on conscience. He says, my conscience won't allow me to put my forehead on the ground to anything or other than God. So it's kind of nice that this word conscience comes back again in the 60s with uh, Muhammad Ali, who says, it's my conscience that won't allow me to go to war. You'd think he's a Seventh-day Adventist. He did live in Berrien Springs for a while, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. So the interesting thing is that speaking of conscience and how it can't let you stand with the Antichrist or war, or the God of war. And that's how I see it. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry you had to go through that wild circumstance earlier. But yeah. Thanks for being here. Yeah. <laughs> Something that Dee and I talk about too is how, you know, fear-based religion and feeling like you have to just bow down to authority can really set us up for failure, you know, with, with the situation of end times events and the Antichrist and whatnot. Yeah, and I think this is also like an important revelation, like throughout the Bible there is a continual narrative of God giving patience and grace to a people who continually misrepresent him to the world right? Like you have the positive side of Abraham erecting an altar wherever he goes, but then you have the negative side of Abraham trafficking his wife twice, right? Um, you have this, this continual narrative of God continuing to strive with and labor for a people and to help them come into harmony with his view of who he really is so that the world can hear that through them and respond and repeated failure and repeated failure and repeated failure of humanity leads to the incarnation. Jesus becoming the only man who actually communicated accurately 100% of the time with every word, deed, and action. This is what God is actually like. And this is what's such a beautiful teaching within Christianity at large and biblical religion is that we actually can know what God is like because Jesus came to reveal the Father to humanity in word, deed, and so forth. And so the, even the Antichrist, right, is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy that God says these things will happen. Why am I mentioning this? Because some people are leaving the church because there are people in the church who are unhealthy, but Bible prophecy says these things will be the case. So it's a fulfillment of prophecy. It's what we, so that shouldn't be the reason to leave. If anything, it's a reason to stay because it's proven that God was right all along. And that God is being merciful with even the people that hurt you and is seeking to win them, that narrative is also throughout Scripture. That doesn't endorse what they did. I'm not saying it's okay. I think it's just fascinating that God allows for that narrative to be in sacred Scripture throughout, and it's kind of a discouraging narrative, isn't it? Right? It's like in Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
we see a lot of that even still today, and I think it's just important for us to uh, recognize that this reality is an unfortunate one, but it's the byproduct of sin, right? And these are people who are struggling with sin in some form or fashion, and that God is still striving even with them, and he's wanting us to make a decision at the end of the day based upon who he is and who he claims to be in his word, and now what somebody else misquoted or misapplied. Yeah, I think it's a big one. Yes. Uh, you mentioned about uh, uh, black and white. I think uh, we, as we realize in the, in the Bible from the beginning was black and white, which means God say, if you uh, eat from the fruit of the tree, you're going to die. Uh, you, you hear many times people say, you know, there's no black and white, you know, which means uh, going through that situation, how, how you see that when people, they say that there's no black and white, uh, Sometimes they might uh, try to say that it's happened even with our relationship with, with God. You know, which, which the Bible is not really black and white. It's, it's not black and white. I mean, you can go around. Think how you see that, that situation and some people when they have that discussion. So, you know, the way we communicated earlier was that there are some things in Scripture that are abundantly clear. This is the actual path. These are the specific steps to take. In other places, God gives us a principle and gives us freedom to work through that. That's my point, right? So we're not negating the fact that God does actually have principles uh, for humanity. We're not negating that at all. But even that, the way in which God communicated, he said, here's the parameters. He didn't just say, don't eat it or you're going to die. That's actually not the language he used at all. He said, of all these trees, you may freely eat. So God gave complete freedom to them. Um, I'll, I'll wait. Just want to make sure you can actually hear what I'm saying here. So, yeah. he, so he said, of all these trees, you may freely eat, but in the day you eat of it, there are consequences to that decision. Does that make sense? But he didn't make the decision for them. So God informs the will, sometimes in direct principles uh, or in direct policies, and other times in broader principles. Depends on the context. He uses both in Scripture, is my point. And then he leaves a choice with us. He gives latitude for that, right? Yeah, so and even if a mistake is made, God makes provision even in that space too. That's what we were alluding to earlier. There's yeah. room for reasoning, right? But, you know, there's, like you said, there's things that are, you know, very clear cut. I wouldn't say that is a black and white thinking. I think black and white thinking lends more to a pathology or a continued way of thinking versus like one instance of like, if you do this, this is gonna happen. Like there's many of those instances in life versus is that a pattern of how you think about everything? That's totally different, right? Yeah. We're actually talking about like a diagnosed term of how things operate in the mental health realm, not just that God has principles yeah. either. I, uh, the reason I ask you because what happened is that when in, in the laws, it's black and white. I mean, you know, you do this, well, this will happen. Like gra gravity or other things, you know. And uh, when the people, uh, how you feel that when the people say, well, you know what, the God of Old Testament is one God and the God of New Testament is another God. Which means, you know, quaint from the same reasoning, how, how you feel that? You know, I think you say, you know, because it's, it's not black and white, which means it's gray. You know, which means that yeah. can be God is one way in, in, one, uh, in these circumstances and there's another God in, in the other circumstances, which means Jesus is, is not like the Father. The Father is very strict and Jesus is loving God, yeah. you know. And yeah, I, I think... I think 
I think we're using two different definitions for black and white, which is actually making things even more gray in our, in our conversation. But I would say that um, it is a, I don't think there's any difference. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father in John chapter 14. So I, while many people will say that, and it's unfortunate, I agree with your frustration on that. I think it's because of an, an uninformed worldview that people come to those conclusions. And there are things in scripture that require us to think critically and wrestle with the text. And sometimes what people do is they will just create a new theology to avoid the tension to just get out of it. Whenever I think God invites us to think critically, as he says in Isaiah, come now, let us reason together. I think he invites us into that critical thinking exercise for a reason. Um, and anyone who engages in that search is always rewarded with light and clarity. Um, and that's what I love about God. And I, I would agree there. Yes. Oh, we have questions online. One of them was, um, could you restate the books and references that you oh, yeah. mentioned earlier? And so, I can try to oh, you can type them in the chat. Yeah, actually, uh, I was going to type for you. So the first one is the book, How We Love. Um, and there's a workbook and there's a book. Make sure you buy the book itself and not the workbook because that's intended to go alongside the book's content. So How We Love, it's Yurkovich, Y-E-R-K-O-V-I-C-H. Um, the other one is Safe People, Safe People by Cloud and Townsend, and the third one is The Hidden Half of the Gospel by Paul Conniff, C-O-N-E-F-F. There's a follow-up question for that. Okay. Uh, I don't know what it is. The Hidden Half of the Gospel? Yeah, go to hiddenhalf.org. Hiddenhalf.org. You can buy from Paul directly. It's like 25, I think. Yes. Okay, you mentioned many times righteousness by faith. Yes. And uh, I, I was pastor in this church for 53 years, and nobody gave me definition of righteousness by faith. And then I went to search. So I had to search to find the definition. I found it in one of the books of uh, the servant of God, Sister White. Yeah. And she says, righteousness by faith is obedience by faith. So righteousness is obedience to the law of God. That is the definition I found, and that definition I believe in it. Now, if my conscience told me that I disobey God, do I have to follow my conscience? I think the, the thing uh, our brother over there mentioned about the conscience, this is very dangerous. We have to consult the word of God, only the word of God. What, what is dangerous? To, to, to consult my conscience. Oh. Because my, yeah. some, some conscience are ill conscience. Yeah, I mean, the Holy Spirit should be the true source of our conscience, yes. right? In John 16, yes. Jesus says, Spirit will We have will to consult the Holy Spirit and the of Word sin, of God. Righteousness and judgment. And yes. the Word of God in the Bible and Spirit of prophecy. Yeah. Both together. You see, if we consult them, then we, are, we, we have the right conscience. Otherwise, we cannot consult our conscience. No way. Yeah. So, I, I would encourage you also, there's a book by Dr. Jennifer Jill Schwarzer. It's called 13 Weeks to Peace, and she talks about how to heal the conscience, how to develop a healthy conscience, which I think is so important to be able to harness. Yeah, bring it into harmony with the Word of God. I mean, so 
If you read the book Faith and Works, Ellen White gives this incredible balance on this idea of how faith and works interplay and work together. Yes. Um, it's alluded to in Galatians 5, 6, a faith yeah. that works by love, yeah. right? The fact that we're inviting God to take the throne of our heart and to empower us to do the things he requires, that the yeah. ministry of the Holy Spirit empowers us to do that. Uh. Um, man in his own right is not capable of obedience to the commandments apart from the power source of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, right? And I love, I, too, that, I love too that um, the book Lessons on Faith by... Jones Wagner, and Wagner. Wagner says that you know righteousness by faith is believing that the word of God will do what the word says it will do, and I think that's really beautiful and that gives me so much assurance because I know that I don't have to anxiously obey God in like all of these forms. I know that God's going to complete that work in me. I know that He's going to make me righteous. Yeah, and so the we read a definition this morning. She says, "What is justification by faith?" Which is a question. How do you define this term? Okay. She says, "It's the it's the faith I live by." One eleven. So she says, what is justification by faith? It's the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is impossible for him to do for himself. And when men see their nothingness, they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So the implication is us coming to recognize what we don't bring to the table and trusting by faith in the righteous life that Jesus lived in our stead and that that can become a reality in our life through the ministry of the Holy Spirit is what righteousness by faith looks like. And this is alluded to in Romans, this is alluded in other places as well, that Jesus declares one righteous as he's in the work of making one righteous. This is kind of how that process works. Well, do, do, we have a whole study we can get on that Do you have a Bible later. with you? Can you read to us uh, Revelation 14 and 12? I don't need to open it yet. Yeah, here's the patience of the saints here, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Uh-huh. Yeah. Two of them. And? You see? So, so two of them, obedience and faith. We need both. It, it, that's what we've been saying. So, and, and, yeah. and James said, faith without work is what? Dead. Dead, you know what, very good. Of course, yeah, Jones and Wagner actually said it's not faith at all. Yeah. So we're not negating any of that. I don't know where this side is. We're, we're saying the same things. So we're in agreement that faith works by love. Um, that's the definition we gave earlier. So, yeah. Uh, any other questions that we can help to answer? We have one here in the front, and we also have one in the middle. So we've got one here, and then we've got one there. One here, and one there. All right, ladies first. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the the information today, and it's been interesting. I've been like thinking, oh, just so many things like I need to turn over to God myself. And um, something I was also thinking about, because something that's very prevalent in our society is cancel culture. Yeah. So we see it's like you know we see um, whether someone you know a figure in our life, whether you know they're doing it's like um, someone in the church, um, you know was you know holding up you know did this or we're seeing these different things. Um, I think it's very easy to, you know, just to say, you know, they're wrong and just kind of leave them and just kind of, you know, cut things out. I've had some friends that have, you know, said, we disagree on this, like we can't be friends anymore. And it's mm -hmm. like, and I've always been taught it's, it's, it's healthy to disagree. It's like we can learn, we can learn from each other. It's a wonderful thing. And it's not something to run away from. Um, what are some ways to witness um, to when we're seeing these things? Like what are the best things so that we don't just um, maybe run away from it, you know? Yeah, I think it's tricky. Like if, if someone isn't wanting to stay, though you've given a safe space for the relationship to continue, they feel that these are irreconcilable differences. 
apart from communicating, hey, like this is kind of how I see this particular circumstance, but certainly I'm not saying you can't see things as you do, but these are the reasons why I, my, I myself have made this choice. I think at that stage, like you're honoring their liberty, right, to exercise it however they will, um, but it's difficult, right, when you incur that cost, obviously, you can say like, hey, it, it's for me, it's not a deal breaker for our friendship to, to not see eye to eye on this issue. But if it is for you, like, I'm not going to make you stay, but I love you and I would love to continue to have you in my life. And you kind of leave the choice with them. It's kind I think of how it's this funny process because, works. Like in that whole example, it just reminds me of deconstruction in the same spirit of like, you know, if I don't agree with this and I'm going to throw you out instead of like having that disentangling process. Right. And um, it's the same with black and white thinking. It is the inability to be able to see the good and the harmful or the unhealthy in somebody, right? And so if you're just like, oh, all I can see in you is bad stuff, then I'm going to deconstruct, you know, or I'm going to cancel you and you're out of my way. Versus like, where's the compassion? Where's the grace? How can we disentangle? What are that person's redeeming qualities? All of those things. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes. Uh, mine is just a, a similar question. I truly appreciate for the presentation. I'm uh, very blessed uh, being here. Uh, my question is, uh, in a family, in a church, um, even pastors and uh, our leaders, and me, myself, I might have distortion. How can you help somebody or motivate somebody to come out of those distortions and come to you know a unity that uh, yeah. God wants us to have in a church, in a family, and uh, whatever we are? That's a great question. I think it's how we have those conversations is incredibly important. If it comes across as you did this, you did that, you're wrong here, you're wrong there. Um, when you start with a closed fist on your end, many times the response you get on the other end is also a closed fist, right? So um, one of the keys to access can be the, the key of vulnerability. So I myself have come to understand that I had a distorted view of how God operates and just sharing your own story. And through that process, if there's a sense of openness and a similar conversation, that can be one way to start it. Um, and just saying, this is something I've come to understand through my own kind of study. I'm realizing, man, I think I probably didn't have the healthiest view of God as he would have intended or like, man, I'm really prone to jump to conclusions. I'm really quick to discount the positive. I'm really quick to jump into a black and white frame of mind. I'm really quick to whatever, right? Maybe I have more uh, of a scrupulosity frame of mind. So these terms that we're using, again, are, are specifically tied to this context, not how they may be appropriated in other places. Because yeah. um, I think some of that's uh, being misunderstood, but yeah. I think too, like what Dee was talking about in his message this morning was, we love to tell people what they're doing wrong. And as soon as we identify an error, we like to just jump in there and be the rescuer, the savior, and be like, whoa, like this is what you're doing wrong, or here's how you're thinking wrong, etc. But I find a really disarming way to go about it is to invite somebody on that journey with you. Go on that journey yourself. Every single one of us needs to go on that journey. And so if you see that somebody else is maybe struggling in the same way, invite them on that journey with you. Say, hey, like, come alongside me. Let's study this out together. Let's see, you know, if there is some thinking that's off or whatnot. But I think it can be the most disarming way. And like Dee said, sharing your side of the story, your testimony. Yeah, because um, 
it's funny. We, I don't know, we were watching an Instagram reel some time ago about this couple that was like reading a mental health book. And then the way in which they dealt with things in a relationship was like, you're using black and white thinking right now. And she's like, yeah, well, you're just you're discounting the positive. Like we can weaponize this new information we've accessed. And that would be the worst thing to do, right? Because we see it, we get excited, and then we can start labeling each other when we hear the distortions. Uh, though we think that may be helpful, it really isn't. Um, and so I think kind of going through self-discovery and communicating our own journey is a more inviting process than just this. Now, what we have done, uh, we've had this and people that we disciple and so forth, is we'll just have a gentle conversation and say, hey, uh, we're kind of noticing a trend here. When this circumstance happens, this is the response we keep witnessing. Um, this is what it's called. We're concerned about that. Um, let's talk about it. That's another thing that can also take place if a more direct form of confrontation is necessary. I think just saying these are the things I'm observing and sticking to facts and not accusation and so forth can also be quite helpful. It's less inflaming than just you're doing this and you're doing that, but this happened. These are the specific examples. These are specific traits we're seeing, and these are classified as X, Y, or Z. This is concerning to us. How can we navigate this? How can we help? And these are real people with real emotions and real yeah. pain. And so asking that person like, hey, like, how is all of this making you feel? Or how does that thought inform your feelings? Or like, you know, if you're noticing unhealthy behaviors, like, you know, what were you thinking, you know, in a gentle way? Like, what thoughts come to mind, you know, when you act in this way? Or like, um, how, how is your heart feeling, you know? Just addressing that person as a human with real experiences and real pain can be really helpful. Um, because you're not just engaging with them on an intellectual level and trying to convince the mind of a certain way of doing things or um, engaging with them at a logical or head level, you're really pulling their heart into the experience. And I think that oftentimes when the heart is soft and when the heart feels seen and loved, true change can happen in that space because everybody wants to be known, everybody wants to be seen and loved and accepted in the state that they're in. And um, generally, once that is recognized, people do want to go on the journey. They do want a guide. Yeah, that's a great question. And like we had a circumstance not that long ago where uh, sometimes I'll ask questions um, based upon observation. So like, hey, um, it seems as though every time we introduce this and this and this, the response that keeps happening is jumping to the worst of conclusions of where we're taking you, what's going on. And then I ask the question, are there things that we are doing to lead you to feel that we are unsafe or we're moving in the wrong direction? Has something that I have done caused that? And the response we got was, because if it has, I want to make that right. I want to take responsibility. So notice, I asked a question based upon observations, and I even gave a space to acknowledge that maybe I was the one that was at fault as opposed to coming at them. And the answer we got was, it actually has nothing to do with you. It's based upon previous experiences I've had in life. And so what happened was, we engaged their critical thinking. They actually had the answer to the problem that we saw. We took them on a journey through questions to get them there. Does that make sense? And it proved to be quite helpful. So it wasn't a very animated, emotional conversation. I'm observing this. This is happening but it doesn't seem to me as though something I have done has led to this being the result, but maybe it has and I'm not seeing it. Please inform me and help me see. Didn't have an answer. They knew actually other people have done hurtful things, so I've just assumed that you would do the same. Oh, well, that's really helpful for me to know, and they acknowledge, you know, but that's probably not fair to you because you haven't done that, right? But if I had, I would want to know and I would want to make it right. And I think you being a safe person who could be corrected 
is also a really helpful way to engage in that dialogue because they now know it's a level playing field. You're not talking down to them. They recognize that you're also willing to be corrected if your observations are wrong or if you're the causative factor in why they're doing what they're doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. Wonderful question. We'll take one more, if there is one more. Do you have any more on the, in the box there? Okay. Well, I hope and pray that this weekend has been helpful for you guys on addressing this issue of bad religion and church hurt and finding healing from both of these. Um, has this been helpful for you to kind of gain some tools and a biblical perspective and how to navigate that? Um, we're still on a journey. We don't have all the answers, but um, there are a few nuggets we're finding along the way, so hopefully those were helpful. Yeah, thanks for having a conversation with us. And uh, just a reminder, another kind of added resource is to... Um, Follow up here on Hey, You're Brave to be able to get some additional uh, content information addressing these types of issues. We'll be rolling out more and more as the rest of the year goes by. So let's pray. Would you like to pray for us? Okay, I'll pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for this chance to uh, reflect upon an important topic and to hopefully address it in a biblically balanced way. Um, not just pointing fingers at people who've done hurtful things, but asking big picture questions on where things are coming from systemically, what our heart issues are, and how we can inter, uh, interface one with another. So I just pray for greater healing and deliverance and uh, correction in this precious movement of destiny so that we can be the best representation of you as is possible, um, as our calling is in Revelation 14 and 18 to reveal your true character of love to the world um, in very adverse circumstances in the world. And so I pray that you would use us to be your champions, your messengers, and your agents uh, to show people who you really are. Forgive us for how we've fallen short in that. And Lord, we want to live a life that honors you, uh, that's in harmony with your word and your expectations. And so we ask that your spirit would guide us into all truth as you promised that it would, that he would convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and that he would empower us to live the life that you require. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.